The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time again and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name's Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, as we continue our series, talking about God seeking different types of people. Let me pray for us, and we will get started. Father, we, we thank you uh, for the gathering. We thank you that all of us coming into this room is a physical reminder of the spiritual reality that you have saved us, that you have made us into a family. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word, that you would change us, shape us. In your name, Jesus, amen. Fifty million That's how many people are estimated to have a diagnosed mental health disorder in the U.S. If you speculate those that are undiagnosed, I'm sure that number goes up much higher. The National Institute of Mental Health states about half of those cases are depression. These numbers have been increasing every single year since the early 2000s, and they've skyrocketed during and since COVID. So just in 2021, the CDC put out numbers that 12.1 million American adults thought about suicide at some point. 3.5 million planned one, and 1.7 million people attempted. And the numbers are even more scary when you look at those under 18 and how mental health affects them. I'm sure you could rattle off more numbers about different things. Now, in a culture that's so deeply affected by depression and other mental health issues, it would be no surprise to see the impact. There's 5,500 podcasts with the word trauma in the title. Trauma has recently been labeled the word of the decade by Vox. Think about the billions of dollars spent by consumers every year on counseling services. 
The United States has the highest keyword search of the term mental health of any country in the world. It's 20 times higher than the second place country year over year. Hashtag self-care videos have over 62 billion views on TikTok. And one in 10 Americans ages 12 and up are on antidepressants. Which is to say, we know that there's a problem. And I know for many of us, this isn't hypothetical. It's not a statistic, it's your life, which I get. Many of you know me well enough to know that this has been part of my story at times. For long seasons in my walk with Jesus, I've found myself in deep, deep seasons of despair, times that you could label as depression, times where I couldn't get out of bed. It wasn't a struggle. I couldn't do it. Times where I literally remember thinking, I would be okay if I didn't wake up tomorrow. I'd be okay if this ended. These were unbearable times in my life. And by God's grace, I'm not there today, but I also know that that's not how it works. It's not a linear thing. Could be in the future. And I've spent a lot of time and money with counselors and friends working through all of that. And I know many of you have too. So my hope this morning, as we continue our series about God seeking different kinds of people, I'm hopeful that if you are there, have been there in the past or know someone there, that this sermon would be very helpful to you. We're going to talk about God and the downcast. God and the downcast. Now, downcast is more of a biblical wording of what many of us experience as depression, as grief, being dejected, miserable, heartbroken, you name it. And it should be no surprise, given the series, my goal is to show us that God seeks the downcast. God seeks the downcast. What we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on a story of a man who found himself in utter despair. He literally wished for his life to end. But before we get to his story in 1 Kings 19, I I need to give you a good bit of context for what's going on here. So we're jumping forward in biblical literature to 1 Kings. So the judges no longer rule God's people. Now it's the kings who rule, and the books of kings, First and Second Kings, are a detailed account about how each and every king ruled. And where we're at today is in the back half of First Kings, uh, where there's a man named Ahab ruling. He was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. And they were terrible rulers, some of the worst in the history of Israel. They reject God and institute false worship of this God called Baal. Ahab's rule over Israel was a time of godlessness and rebellion. So much so that the writers of 1 Kings say that He's the worst. No, he's way worse than anybody that came before him, which is where the man we're focused on comes in to the story. A man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the time of the kings, and scholars tend to think of him as a bit wild. He lived off in the wilderness alone, and he became worst enemies with Ahab and Jezebel, as he should. Now, a story that we're zooming in on in his life actually starts three years before the text we're going to read. 
It begins with God calling Elijah to go to Ahab and pronounce that a severe drought is about to take place, and it's going to last three years because of Ahab and the northern kingdom's wickedness. And immediately this drought takes place. There's no rain for years. And the queen Jezebel responds by trying to have all of the prophets of the true God killed. So Elijah escapes with others, but now he's on the run. And he stays on the run for three years. And finally, God calls Elijah to return to the northern kingdom. He says, you need to go confront Ahab. The drought is finally going to end. And he goes and does it, but it turns into this interesting showdown between Elijah and 400 prophets of this false god, Baal. The text says the whole nation crowds around them and Elijah challenges them. You need to pick a side. Either worship God or worship Baal, but you can't do both. You have to pick. And then he turns to these false prophets and he says, we're going to have a prophet showdown. Whoever's God shows up wins. So we're going to make a sacrifice. We're going to build an altar. And whoever's God lights it on fire, that's who wins. You guys can go first. And so they pray for hours and hours and hours. No answer. It's actually funny. Elijah makes fun of them. He literally says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. They call on Baal for hours, no answer. It's Elijah's turn. He says a quick prayer and fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. God shows up. The nation declares that the Lord is God. And then Elijah, along with many others, kill all these false prophets. And then Elijah prays for this drought to end, and it does. All that to say, Elijah has seen God do some crazy things some amazing things. And he's now hopeful that this is going to lead to restoration for the nation and for Ahab to repent. Now let's see how it actually plays out. 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. So it doesn't go quite as expected. Jezebel gets word and promises to kill Elijah. And although this isn't the first time this has happened to him, it hits him way differently than just a couple chapters before. Because Elijah's confused. He had some expectations for how this would go, on, go down. After all he'd been through, he was convinced that what God was doing was calling him back to Israel to restore the nation. That Ahab would repent, which isn't a crazy assumption. God brings this drought. It's a symbol that the nation is spiritually bankrupt. And now the drought is supposed to be ending. So that means that there should be restoration. But that's not the case at all. And he's back on the run, and this time he's terrified because it didn't play out how he thought it would. And now he's probably wondering, if that didn't work out the way it should have, what else is about to happen to me? Keep going, verse 3. And then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, 
for I'm no better than my father's. So he flees into the southern kingdom of Judah, goes out into the wilderness, and it says he leaves his servant. There's an emphasis on this. It means he's quitting. He's not planning to come back. It's like, stay here. I'm done. I'm done with ministry. And then he sits down under this tree and he says, God, take away my life. Elijah is in utter despair. He's depressed. He's downtrodden. Now, I just, I just want to pause there and address something going on here. I want to, I want to be really careful about not overlaying our own experiences with emotional and mental health on this text. So a lot of people read this and say, Elijah was suicidal. He's suicidal here. And I, I just think you have to be careful with that because I think you might be projecting something onto that text that's not meant to be projected. And although I totally see the similarities to what you could label as suicidal ideation, I just want to point out a key difference. So even though Elijah is at a very low point in his life and does desire death, he in no way presumes that he has the right to take his own life. He asked God to do it, which is not a nothing, still a big deal, but he does not presume that he has the right to do it. And that matters because the Bible in no way, shape, or form encourages or affirms or condones suicide. That being said, I, I do think Elijah is an incredibly relatable character if you've ever found yourself in that place. Because what is clear is he's so hopeless and in such a deep place of despair, he's asking God to let him die, to take away his life. Which if that's where you're at this morning, please come talk to us. Do not hesitate. You are not a burden. Like, don't wait. Come talk to me or Tim today. Pull us aside. Bring a friend if you need to. We love to talk to you. And I just want to say this story is confirmation that you can be a person of faith. A Christian, someone that's experienced God in real ways and still find yourself in a place like this. The scriptures are full of people who doubt God. And although God never celebrates doubt, and that's important to know, he does welcome it. Which is what makes Elijah even more relatable. He's at this spiritual high, and then it just turns around, and it's all gone. He's at the lowest point in his life, and he wanders off into the wilderness. Let's see what God does with him. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So the angel of the Lord shows up and meets him in the wilderness. And this angel does not do what we would think. Doesn't do what other angels do in other interactions in the Bible. He doesn't say, do not be afraid, Elijah. Or I have good news, Elijah. Or even repent, Elijah. The angel shows up, touches him, feeds him. This angel shows up and cooks for Elijah and then says, go back to sleep. 
and then shows up again and repeats the process and says, this journey is too much for you. So don't miss that. This angel shows up, touches him, meets his immediate needs, allows him to rest and acknowledges his feelings. Now that treatment is nice. It's about to change though. There's about to be a tonal shift when he gets to Horeb. We'll see what happens. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And I seek my life to take it away. So Elijah comes to Mount Horeb and God asks him, why are you here? And just as a reminder, God never asks questions for new information. This isn't like, Elijah, small world, what are you doing here? It's not what's happening. It's not for God to get new information. It's for Elijah to get new information. By, by asking him this question, it allows Elijah to actually express why he's so low. And he does. He had some expectations for his life that God did not meet. He's mad at God. He says, I've been jealous for the things of God. And look at what your people are doing. They don't care about you. They're trying to kill me. What are you doing? He's frustrated that after all he's done, the nation is still godless. And he feels that he's the only godly person left. Why are you letting that happen, God? Which I just want to note even though Elijah's feelings are understandable, he is wrong. What he's saying is not reality. We know that just from his story. Multiple other prophets escaped Jezebel's persecution. Even when he beats out the other priests of Baal, the nation declares that the Lord is God. So he's not alone. It's just that Jezebel and Ahab, who do have the power, do not repent. His perspective is marred by his despair. And it's also important to know it's not bad. Like what he's hoping for wasn't a bad thing. His despair is not there because of his sin. What he wanted was a great thing. He's depressed because he wanted God to move and bring the king and nation into repentance. And in doing so, his life is even threatened. It makes sense. But the problem, though, is Elijah's desires for God were not in God's plan and it crushes him. He thought for sure it was going to play out a certain way, and it didn't. God hears him out, acknowledging his frustration and doubt, and let's see what he says. Verse 11, And he, God, said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. It's a very fascinating two verses. This must have been really frustrating for Elijah because here God says, go out and stand on the mountain, see what I'm going to do. And the wind passes by, and then an earthquake, and then a fire. And to us, this might just seem like God's flexing. I don't know what's happening here. 
But these are not random things that he's showing Elijah. Elijah would have known exactly what he was doing. These are all ways that God has shown up to his people in the past. So God sends a wind in Genesis to dry the land after the flood. He sends a great wind to part the seas for the Israelites. When Moses goes up Mount Horb to get the Ten Commandments, it says the presence of God descends and the earthquakes. God appears to Moses in a fire in the burning bush. God sends a fire to lead the Israelites as they leave Egypt. All that to say, these are all ways that Elijah would have expected God to show up. But it says he's not in any of these things. It's as if God is showing Elijah, I'm more than you could ever understand. I don't just appear and do what you expect. I can't be contained. In the famous words of C.S. Lewis, I'm not a tame God. Now listen to what's really interesting about this. Just like Elijah thought he knew what God's plans were for Ahab and Jezebel and the nation, he also thought he knew how this interaction would go down. Here's what I mean. Does anybody know the other name for Mount Horeb? No Bible scholars in the room. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Does anybody know what happened at Mount Sinai? A lot of things. Yes, Ten Commandments would be one of them. It's also where Moses initially meets God in the burning bush. But possibly the most important to this story is it's where Moses goes to see the glory of God. There's this small story in Exodus 33 where Moses is frustrated with the Israelites. He's doubting his calling, and he says, God, if you want me to do this, I need to know you. I need to see you with my own eyes. I need you to show me your glory. And God says, okay, come up to Sinai, and I'll put you in a cleft in the rock, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my glory. Now, this word for cave in 1 Kings 19 is very similar to that word for cleft in Exodus 33. This is not something I'm making up. Many scholars think that what Elijah is doing here is he's going up the mountain to try to find the exact spot where Moses saw the glory of God. Why is he doing that? Because that's the formula. That's where God will be. But God flips it on him. And he says, you thought I'd be fire. You thought I'd be wind. You thought I'd be an earthquake. You thought you could find the cleft in the rock and I would have to come out and you'd see me. You even covered your face because you thought you might be blinded. But no, I appear as a whisper. He's showing Elijah who he really is, which is so important to this story because if you miss what God is doing here, you might think that this story is primarily about Elijah seeking God, that this story is about the downcast going to try to find God. Now, certainly, Elijah is seeking God. Elijah rests, he fasts, he takes the journey to Horeb, he tries to find God. But to just say that's the only thing going on here would be a huge miss. Because the whole story, God is seeking Elijah first. And Elijah could not seek God if God had not sought him first. So Elijah goes off into the wilderness, leaving his assistant. He's not really seeking God there. God goes and finds him. God goes and finds him under the tree. He seeks him out. God cooks him a meal. God acknowledges his despair and tells him to rest. And it's that time with God that then strengthens him to go take the journey to the mountain. And Elijah gets to the mountain and God is still seeking him, except now he's working on his heart. 
He's showing Elijah who he really is. He's saying, I'm not in any of these things that you expected I would be. This is who I really am. See, Elijah's depressed because he doesn't know who God really is. He thinks God has let him down. He has a bad view of God's character. And God didn't do obviously what he should have done. And God is graciously trying to root that out of him. Trying to say, this is who I really am. Elijah, this is what I'm like. I'm the one in control. Look at all my power. All these miracles you've done, it's my power. You're my prophet. So I don't adhere to your agenda, however good it is. And although this is probably the opposite of what Elijah would have wanted, it's exactly what he needs. It's exactly what he needs. And God is so committed to helping Elijah see this, he repeats the same exact interaction he just had. Look back at verse 13. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God repeats the same question. This time, though, instead of showing Elijah who he is, he shows him what he's doing. He says, okay, let me pull back the curtain for you. Here's what you've been missing. I do have a plan. It's just not your plan. He says, go anoint this pagan king, which he would have never thought of doing. Go anoint Jehu over Israel. Go anoint your successor, Elisha. And by the way, there's actually 7,000 of my people in Israel that are faithful to me. You are not alone. And then that's the end of the story. So what we know is that Elijah then leaves. He goes and does as the Lord says. We don't get a clear resolution. There's no, and then Elijah was happy again. It's not there. But we do know he goes back into ministry serves God faithfully and eventually is taken up into heaven by God. He never dies. What we see is that although Elijah had wished for death, it's actually something that he's spared from. The very thing he wished for never happens. So he didn't see who God actually was. And he couldn't imagine that God's plan was actually much greater than his own. Now, that was a lot a lot in that story. So I just want to spend a good bit of time talking about what this means for us. I think there's three different responses to this text of what God is doing in Elijah's life. So number one, some of us like Elijah are downcast because of what we hoped God would do. Some of us like Elijah are downcast because of what we hoped God would do. So this story for you is very relatable. You've sought the Lord, 
and you're disappointed in what he's done or isn't doing. You've been praying about godly desires, desire for justice or healing, a desire for children, a desire for godly relationships, redemption in your family, salvation for somebody you love, and he hasn't answered. It's not playing out how you want. And you're grieved, and you're exhausted, tired of praying for it, and I get it. There's stuff that I've been begging for God to do in our city, in our church for years. It hasn't happened yet. It's very hard. Now, just a word for us. If you're there, or you know somebody who is there, lovingly, we have to stop with the Christian platitudes. There's a line where it goes, you know, this hasn't worked out yet, but it's just because God has something better for me. And that sounds really nice. You know, I didn't get the job, but it's just because God's got something better for me. Or it didn't work out with so-and-so. That's because God's got someone better for me. And I appreciate that optimism. It's just not real Christian hope. Because what that is, is you're still putting your hope in a certain outcome and then co-signing God to it. That's not real hope. So yes, God works all things for the good of his people, including you. But your good, most of the time, is not what you want or what you desire. It's what God wants. And what he wants for you is for you to be more like Jesus, which may mean that there's more suffering and hardship down the line. It may mean that you never get the thing that you so deeply desire. But he wants to use that to form you. And that's the win. That type of thinking, the platitudes, you combine that with deep disappointment over time, it's something we have to be really aware of and careful with. I mean, right now there's a whole movement with ex-evangelicals and deconstruction, and so much of it just comes down to people are disappointed with God and they don't know what to do with it. And I don't want that to be true of any of us. you got to see this story. Disappointment is part of the Christian life. Don't walk away from Jesus because something didn't pan out. You're disappointed and you were shocked about it. Or you think it's all fake. I don't want that for you. But also at the same time, don't just grit your teeth through all this. See that God is seeking you. Just as he sought Elijah. See how unique his treatment is of you. I see the dazzling display of his kindness in the story. I can't think of another time that God does more to get one person's attention. Shows up as fire, wind, earthquake, intimate whisper, cooks this man a cake, tells him to rest, acknowledges his feelings. See how that's true for you too. God is approachable. He invites you to rest. He's willing to hear you out. And he's graciously inviting you to trust him. See who I am. See that my plans are not your plans. And that's hard, but I love you. He's trustworthy, regardless of circumstance or outcome. Now, the second one, for some of us, we're actually unlike Elijah. We're downcast because of our sin. Some of us, unlike Elijah, are downcast because of our sin. So we actually shouldn't be relating to this story because we're downcast for a completely different reason. I need you to see that the two are different. And that's not to shame you. I've been downcast because of my sin many times. 
That's to help you. You need to have clarity because it's a really dangerous thing to think you're Elijah when you're actually like Samson from last week and your sin has caught up to you. That's bearing poor fruit in your life. Now be encouraged. God also is seeking you. He still loves you. The reason that you're downcast doesn't make your feelings of being downcast any less valid. It just means the response needs to be different. So yes, still see that God is seeking you, but you need to also repent and seek God and follow him more closely. Now our last one, I want to spend most of our time with this. Some of us, like Elijah, need more of God. Some of us, like Elijah, need more of God. Let me explain what I mean. So there's a lot of people that I see that are downcast for whatever reason and are handling it in fairly helpful ways, doing healthy things, but differently from Elijah because God is actually removed from the process completely. And I see this in our church. I see it in Christian circles everywhere. And I talk about it a good bit because I don't know of anything right now that's so pervasive that nobody talks about. So right now in our culture, there is a obsession with therapy, self-love, self-help. I mean, I read you some of the stats. There's even a name for it. Therapy culture, the self-love movement. And sure, some of it may be really good because of how bad the problem is right now with mental health. But the problem, though, is that when it comes to mental health, there's a divorce from the spiritual. So we say, the problem is my mental health, which is both a physical brain chemistry issue as well as an emotional issue. i got to deal with my trauma. got to deal with my negative thoughts. So the solution is I need exercise. I need to fix my diet. I need to fix my brain chemistry. I need to get someone to talk to, most likely a professionals, and get a journal and take a nap. And Christians have bought into this too, largely in part because of 1990s Christian culture that said, hey, if you're depressed, read your Bible and shut up, which is bad advice, not recommending that. But the problem is we swung completely opposite and we think we're in the middle and we're not. So one example, just anecdotally, anecdotally, something we've noticed as pastors is that it's becoming very common for people to ask their pastor for a recommendation for a therapist rather than actually asking to meet with their pastor. And I think that's interesting because people would rather pay to meet with a stranger rather than meet with the person the scriptures say is the primary means of care in their life if they're a member of a church. Again, I think this is just divorce from the spiritual. And that mode of thinking, pastors, our executives, run the church and the programs, and public speakers give me a little talk on Sundays. It's a divorce from the spiritual. And so there's many of us here today that are in a state of despair or have been, and our focus is solely what our culture would tell us to do. Go to counseling, change your diet, get naps, exercise, get some resources, listen to a podcast, Get some medication, read a book, read a blog, subscribe to different influencers. And as a pastor, I'm just asking, where is God in your care plan? Where is God in all of this? So for many of us, our favorite part of the sermon was where God baked Elijah a cake and got a nap. But we miss what all of that was pointing to. 
It was God giving him the fuel to go get confronted by his presence on the Mount of God. That's where he's going. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not frustrated by this. I'm not annoyed by it. I don't have a bone to pick. This is just something that grieves me because I think we're cutting ourselves off from the real source of healing. So as a Christian, anytime you see something in our culture that people are head over heels for, that are just, yes, do this 100%, we should be critical of it, even if it's a really, really good thing. We talk about this with justice. So right now, there's a great desire in our culture for justice. But we also see that the world wants the kingdom without the king. Talk about this all the time. So they want all the peace and justice and flourishing that Jesus offers in his kingdom, but without him. And the same is true when it comes to depression and mental health. We want the health without the healer. We want the health without the healer. So, you know, I don't think this is a crazy statement, but I think it's going to be offensive. If a depressed Christian and a depressed non-Christian are handling depression the same way, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And you can't convince yourself that you're doing it differently just because you go to see a Christian counselor. That may or may not do anything. Does your Christian therapist point you towards Jesus? Explicitly, do they tell you to pray? Do they tell you to read your Bible? Do they tell you to fast? Do they tell you to repent of sin? Now, I'm not trying to pick on counseling. I'm pro-counseling. I'm just saying that counseling should be like step five if you're a Christian struggling with this. The first and foremost thing that you should be worried about if you're here is your life with God. Are you spending time with Him? Are, how are your disciplines? How's community? Do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? And then if you're doing all the right inputs and we think counseling would be helpful, go do that. But what should not be happening is you showing up to group every week and saying, you know, therapy was really helpful this week. I processed this thing. I processed this thing. Oh, how's my time with God? I don't have time for that. So we got hours for therapy and not minutes for God. That's backwards. So like Elijah, we need to seek God. I'll be the crazy pastor that says, hey, Elijah fasted for 40 days when he was depressed and sought the Lord. And I think there's something there for us. I'm not saying that that's exactly what you should do. I don't know. I'm just saying, in well over a decade of following Jesus in this type of community, deep community, I have never myself or seen in others, and it's not like I've had a small sample, never seen somebody say, I'm really doing poorly right now, so I'm going to seek the Lord like I never have for the next 40 days. I've never seen it one time. So there's something there for us. Like Elijah, I think we need to be willing to take the journey to keep God at the center, to seek Him. But don't just do it to do it. Let the reminder that He seeks you first be the fuel. He seeks you in your sin, in your disappointment, in your lack of disciplines, in your despair and your hopelessness. And we know that from this story, but also because of what this story points us to. Ultimately, Elijah's story with God here is just a glimpse of God's commitment to seeking the downcast. Elijah had to go to the mountain of God. He had to ascend to the heavens to find the presence of God. But years and years later, the presence of God would descend from the heavens. 
Jesus puts on flesh and moves amongst his people. Again, serving the people just like he served Elijah. Again, listening to the people, getting to know the people like he did with Elijah. He lives with them and eventually dies for his people. And he's raised to life again. Now the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us if we believe. You do not have to go to Mount Sinai to find God. If you believe, he's in you. His spirit dwells within you. Even if you can't see it or feel it, even if in your despair you doubt it, he is with you. He has sought you out to save you and is still seeking you, whether you're doing great or at your lowest. Jesus came to seek you. He sought you out to seek us at our lowest, to seek the downcast. So as we have each week, we're going to talk um, about a practice real fast. We're going to respond throughout the week and not just let this be a sermon. So just like last week, we're going to run it back with fasting. This week, think of it as you're taking a posture of willingness. You're saying to God, I'm setting apart this day. I'm going to lean on you. I'm acknowledging that I need you. We're putting ourselves in a place to see that God is the one actually sustaining us and seeking us. So we'll do that this week. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Man, let us be encouraged by how much you're willing to put out there to show your wisdom and kindness to those that are downcast. Lord, you offer real, tangible, physical help, emotional help, and spiritual help. Lord, let us be moved by your grace. Jesus, we thank you that you sought us out, that your spirit dwells within us. Lord, I pray for those that are actually in a place of being downcast, Lord, that you would encourage them this morning, that you would lift their heads, that they would see and experience your nearness. Jesus, you're good. Pray it all in your precious name. Amen.